Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. How's your week going? Uh, it's been absolutely fantastic. In fact, do you know who I heard back from this week, Steve? Who'd you hear back from? I heard back from Ashley at 45 Drives. And so we've been working with them for the past couple of months. Essentially, uh, it started actually with the relationship of a client. They had an excellent experience with 45 Drives. And it came out through that experience that 45 Drives is doing all sorts of work in the open source community to make storage, taking it to the next level. And so if you're looking for storage that scales and you want it to be on open source and you want it to use open source principles and do things like ZFS but have a really cool looking UI, there is an awesome player on the market and they are 45 drives. And so I reached out to him and I said, hey, you guys are doing outstanding work would you come on the program and talk about the cool things that you're doing? And by the way, answer some cool technical geek questions. And they said, we'd love to. So we've been in the process of trying to work that out. It is going to happen next week. Doug from 45 Drives is going to join us live. It's one of the few times I'm going to implore you in the strongest possible way to join us live. If you don't usually uh, attend the program live, next week is the week to do it. So it's going to be January Somebody joined the channel, and so that just dropped my calendar. This is really obnoxious. Uh, the 17th, it'll be uh, January 17th. So if you can join us January 17th at 6 p.m., we'll be live. If you can't, send your questions in to live at asknoahshow.com or post them in the Geek Lab, geeklab.ninja, and tag Marlon, the, the, uh, the, the questions bot, and he will, uh, he'll store them for us, and we'll bring them up with Doug next week. You ready to get into some feedback, Steve? Absolutely. Our first feedback comes in from Baku. Baku writes in and says, Hi there, guys. You talked about immutable desktops on episode 318. They're certainly appealing, but in my humble opinion, not quite ready for the average user yet. They require a bit of tinkering and they have their own unique ways of doing things, which requires quite a bit of set getting used to. Anyway, here are four immutable, reproducible Linux operating systems for interested community members to try. So he links to Fedora Silverblue, Open Source, or OpenSUSE rather, MicroOS, NixOS, and GUIX, or G-U-I-X. Noah, you mentioned your love for Xmonad Tiling Window Manager in an old episode. Would you be interested in something like that that brings the cool tiling features right to your favorite KDE desktop? If yes, I've got something for you to check out. It's called Bismuth, and you can check it out here, and he links to the bismuth github wishing you steve your loved ones in the memory uh, members of the community a great and happy prosperous 2023 thanks baku hey we appreciate your rating in baku so a couple of things there i want to do a bit of a clarif a, a little bit of clarification when we're talking about immutable operating systems we're talking about them or framing them in the way of how about non-technical users being able to explore their technology without the fear of breaking the technology? And the example that I used was my son's Steam Deck. But I think that's really where immutable operating systems come into their own. Yes, power users can use them and often do to provide a layer of abstraction. But I also think the real value in them is when you have a 60, 70-year-old person that really doesn't understand the technology if they have a traditional install, every change they make is persistent to the machine. And so their recovery options can be limited. If you screw the wrong thing up, you can't go back. With an immutable operating system, that changes, the paradigm changes a little bit because you have the opportunity to just go back to a point of stability. Steve, what are your thoughts? So I was giving this some thought. I was thinking along your lines, the idea of the immutable desktop is probably better suited for someone that doesn't want to doesn't want to or doesn't know how to install their own OS. And I was thinking back to the days when Windows was really the only viable desktop operating system, you know, circa 2000-ish. And yes, I know the graybeards out there are pounding on their keyboards telling me how wonderful Linux was back then. 
I started Linux on the desktop in 2004, and I can tell you, MDIS wrapper is not very fun. But anyways, I digress. The point of that was people still use Windows, regardless of how hard it was for them to set up, because they didn't have to set it up. Somebody else set it up for them. And so like you, I think that the market that is particularly appealing is someone who sets this up and hands it to someone and says, here, have fun. You know, don't worry about installing anything because, you know, I've already done it for you. And so that's where I think the immutable uh, operating systems really will come into their own. Our second email comes in from Zane. Zane says, hi, Noah and Steve. I love the show. I'm looking for a good web page to PDF converter or archiver that does a good job of maintaining the web page layout and formatting, as well as maintaining links within the page, such as navigation trees, if possible. An example of these types of pages I would like to archive would be an API documentation, such as, and then he links to uh, a, a website that he wants to archive, or a Python language documentation, he links to another one. I don't always have internet access, and so it would be great to have these pages saved locally that I can pull them up and navigate around with the information that I'm looking for. I've tried saving the page as website complete or web page HTML or printing to PDF, and it either messes up the web page layout formatting or breaks navigation links or both. Sometimes it's completely unusable. I realize it's a pretty big ask for a piece of software, but I'm hoping there is something I haven't run across yet. You're always recommending great pieces of software that I haven't heard of before. And I know that you also try to make sure that your workflow and systems are internet outage proof. So I'm hoping you have a good solution here. Thanks, Zane. So I will be honest with you, Zane, as much as I uh, love the concept of being able to take websites portable with you. And as much as I wish that there was something along the lines of, uh, you know, the Wayback machine that could be run locally or used locally off the top of my head, I don't have an answer for you. Um, Steve, have, so I've done what you're doing insofar as I just print to PDF. And that way the information is at least there. If it's some sort of documentation, I'll typically copy and paste and I'll paste it into my own wiki. Yes, I recognize that's a huge ask and a ton of time, but it gets me to where I need to be. Um, Steve, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, so uh, you and I chatted about this before the show and then it hit me. I remember doing this with WGET. WGET specifically has flags for things like mirroring, um, converting absolute hyperlink like absolute hyperlinks into relative hyperlinks for offline viewing. Mm -hmm. You can you can change the file extension so that it it will work like locally and all that kind of stuff. So um, it's not you know there's no nice UI, but as far as I know, and I've just kind of pulled something up on random search engine, uh, it still is. It still works to this day. You find people talking about it as late as you know mid twenty twenty two, using uh, wget to mirror things for offline. So you might check that out. The other thing is, we'll put it out to the community. If you know of something that is good at archiving offline web pages, I'd love to hear from you. You can write in at live at asknoahshow.com. and we'll include a link to archiving a website with wget. We'll have that for you in the show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow. Com. Our third email comes in from Adrian. Adrian writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. Thanks for the awesome show. I've got a question about virtualization. What do you guys use for virtualization management? I've been using Libvirt plus QEMU-KVM with cockpit machines as the management UI as well as Vert Manager on a client host. While Vert Manager does an okay job at managing remote hypervisors, it lacks stability. Cockpit Machines, on the other hand, has been fairly stable since EL 8.5 for me, but it lacks features when it comes to configuring VMs. Read Vert XML and Verse Edit. Also, what do you think about the future of Overt now that Red Hat has pulled their resources from the project? I think it would be sad to see it fade away since it always provided the best performance when comparing to things like Proxmox and vSphere and ESXi. Thanks in advance, Adrian. So, Steve, I'll let you start. What are your thoughts on virtualization? How do you manage it? How often do you run into it on the field? What would you choose if somebody came to you and said, Steve, I want to virtualize something. What should I use? So I always go with libvirt, except in my specific work lab where I'm running VMware because I'm mirroring client environments. Um, and so it's been my experience that with very few exceptions, most people are running VMware, if they're running things locally, you might run into OpenStack. There are some large clients that are doing OpenStack. That's a lot for a home lab, and that's way more than I want to take on. 
in terms of how I end up managing it, uh, I currently have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten hosts in my uh, in my VM arsenal, I suppose, and they're all being managed via Vert um, Manager. I have enabled Cockpit on some of them, but I've been using Vert Manager for so long that it's just kind of my go-to thing. I I may drop to Versh on the command line for for some things like snapshots and stuff. And when I say it out loud, I understand the uh, Adrian's point here, where it doesn't have all of the features because mm. I just never even thought about that. I've been doing it so long that I just did. You know, I have a script that does snapshots and reverts and stuff like that. So. It's one of those things like we you become immune to the paper cuts after a while. Do you power the VMs off when you take snapshots? Nope, not usually. Depends what I'm doing. If it's a fresh install, then maybe, but most of the time I don't. Linux Ninja in the chat room, which you can find at geeklab.ninja, says, Vert Manager has been rock solid for me. Cockpit has been somewhat problematic. I manage a VMware cluster at work, and it has its own problems. Many, many, many problems. I have cockpit enabled on my host, but Vert Manager is what I use to do all the work. So it's funny that this question comes in today of all times, because literally before I walked into the studio to do the show, we were troubleshooting a, a, a Vert host or a virtual host that was running LibVirt. And my experience tells me that Vert Manager has all of the features there. They all work. And so if you're having trouble with Vert Manager, I might troubleshoot why you're having trouble with Vert Manager and see if you can resolve that. Because in general, I don't think you should be having problems with it. It is deprecated software. And so they are moving towards things like Cockpit, but it's not quite there yet. Now, it's funny. I say that and then I immediately have to follow it up with. But then there's some things that are just way easier and better to do in Cockpit. And so the first example I would give for that is networking configuration doing bridges and stuff in vert manager very possible it's all there the ui elements are all there to do it it's just much cleaner inside of cockpit there's a little add button those sorts of things we had a darn near catastrophic failure a while back when we tried to add a storage device through cockpit and i learned that day that at the time it wasn't it didn't create a persistent change and so when you restarted the box the, the storage device is not so much there um and so so those created some problems and so my advice to you Stick with Vert Manager while they're working out the issues with Cockpit. Once we have all of the issues worked out with Cockpit, then I would continue. I would continue to have that available and I would continue to play with it because I think that's the direction that um, that Red Hat is going with it. Now, as it relates to Overt, Steve, do you have, uh, I guess for you, RHV, Overt, any experience and or thoughts on it? I mean, I worked with Rev for a little bit. I liked Rev well enough. I'm not really sure what the future of the project is with with um, resources being reallocated. So part of the resources that were dedicated to working on virtualization have moved over and start working on a project called Kubevert, which is, I don't know, I guess the, the, the basic way to say it is a way for Kubernetes to be able to be the manager of VMs and move mm. them around just like containers. So that's where Red Hat's efforts have gone as far as I know, not being a part of those teams. Sure. Um, I'm unsure of how over it is going to fare without someone at the helm like that. It is kind of disappointing because it was, you know, RHV slash Overt is, that's a really fantastic project. I mean, it really does a lot to stack up to what VMware and and, and those things can do, vSphere and, and ESXi could do. So I'm kind of disappointed to see that they're they're moving in a different direction. However, I think, and I, I know you and I have talked about this offline, I don't know if we've talked about it on the air before, but I think this is going to come full circle. I think eventually we're going to get burned out with all of the container stuff. Not burned out, that's the wrong way to phrase it. But I think eventually we're going to look and say, mm, there is some value to having separate machines entirely. Um, if if Just for sanity's sake. Even if, it, even if they are machines that are controlled by you know, Kubernetes and, and that's what's sliding machines around. Um, so I, the answer to your question, Adrian, I don't know. I, I, I'm really, I'm really at an impasse. I, I would tell you this, as far as things that scale well, Proxmox is good. I mean, if you're looking to build a data center and you want an open source virtualization platform that will do that, Proxmox is not a bad way to go. The thing that I like so much about Libvirt and why I keep circling back to it, when you need it to be redonkulously simple, you can run a single command and have a virtual host running off of a laptop or whatever off of 
any Red Hat or Fedora or Ubuntu installation. Just install the packages and boom, now you have a virtual host. When you need that to scale, when you need to do more, you can slide those QCOW2 files into an overt system and you're able to do that. And really the only, the, really the deciding factor for me anyway, between do I do a single monolithic host versus overt is do I have centralized storage? Centralized storage, you're going overt. If you have, uh, if it's a single monolithic client, you're, I'm, I'm going with, with, with just libvert. Have you tried GNOME boxes just as an aside? Uh, I think maybe I played with it when it first came out. Um, but then I went back to VirtualBox, if I'm being honest. I, well, it's just a front end for things, right? So I installed KVM on my wife's laptop um, and, you know, a little teaser for later, put put Endless OS on that. And the front end that I gave her was GNOME Boxes because it works really well. It really? has come quite a long ways. It's not necessarily for, for the power user. But one of the things I really like about it is if you've got a bunch of VMs, it gives you like a live preview of each one of the VMs in your overview. So like you can see the desktop or whatever, and it helps you select your images. Um, I, I found it to be a really good end user interface. Not It's not really an awesome administrator interface necessarily, but... You should check it out sometime. Does it let you do full, like if you, can you do like a full screen, like you have a VM and you can mm -hmm. go full screen and then it'll uh, scale like it does in, in VirtualBox or is yep. it like, okay. Yep. Very cool. It, that was my experience anyways. It just, it will resize itself to the size of the screen. That's awesome. I'll have to check it out. So we'll have links for all of this for you in the show notes. You can go to podcast.asnoahshow.com, check it out. And if you're new to virtualization and you want to get started, this might be an excellent place to get started, you can do that again, podcast.asknoahshow.com. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of January 8th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. The effort to bring about a budgie desktop-based Fedora spin has been successful, and releases are targeted with Fedora 38. The GNOME team has targeted March 22nd for the release of GNOME 44. Krita 5.1.5 has been released, Another graphics editor, Pinta, has released version 2.1. Calibre 6.11 is out. CadenLive 22.12.1 has been released. OpenWRT has released a new service release, version 22.03.3. OBS Studio has released version 29 for Windows and Mac, with Linux builds to follow soon. OpenMandriva has released Rome 23.1, which is Mandriva's rolling release edition. The last Linux 4.9 branch release has been made, and the branch has been declared EOL. Everyone still using the 4.9 kernel series is encouraged to upgrade. A tiny Linux-compatible kernel named Tick is gaining attention. It's licensed under BSD and is intended to be an educational kernel design for those wanting to test doing things in kernel mode while retaining the ability to compare how the very same user mode bits run on the Linux kernel. And of course, it runs Doom. According to a Stack Overflow survey, Linux use has overtaken macOS use. After years of building on top of the Linux-based stack, BMW has announced it is moving to the open-source Android automotive operating system. In other Android news, Google has announced that it is going to support the RISC-V architecture. The first open-source chat GPT equivalent appears to have been released. It's built on top of Google's Palm architecture, which includes 540 billion parameters, and is an implementation of RLHF, Reinforced Learning with Human Feedback. In other AI news, a group of researchers has released Petals, a 100 billion plus language model system that you can run at home through what they are calling a BitTorrent style. Amazon has released Fortuna, an open source machine learning toolbox for uncertainty assessment. Google has open sourced its CDC file transfer protocol that was once part of Stadia. And lastly, NASA's Science Mission Directorate is asking public and private sector entities for ideas on how to better manage data and computing infrastructure. The Space Agency established the Open Source Science Initiative to promote early-stage sharing of software, data, documents, and other relevant scientific knowledge in the spirit of transparency, inclusivity, accessibility, and reproducibility. To this end, the SMD is seeking technologies and opportunities that can support open science information and computing functions. Thanks, JT. Our fourth email comes in from Glenn. Glenn writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I'm looking to set up some services at my home, which include a NAS, maybe a true NAS if it's practical, a Nextcloud instance, a Plex server, and who knows, maybe at, something, at some point something like Home Assistant. I'm wondering what would be the best way to go about this. I'm not opposed to spending a little bit of money to get hardware, but I don't want to blow my brains out. I'd like to be somewhat energy conscious, and I would like to be relatively quiet. 
Recently, I purchased a used Lenovo M93 TinyPC with an i5-4570 processor, 16 gig of RAM, and a 256 gig SSD. My thinking was that I could use a couple of USB enclosures for external storage, but I'm not sure if this is the right plan or not. Could all of these applications be run on an M93 on top of Ubuntu, or should each of them be their own platform as a VM? I'm somewhat familiar with Proxmox, as I used it on an HP ProLiant 360 G8 server at my office for a few applications, but I'm not sure if this is something I would use on the Lenovo PC or if it would have enough resources to power all of the above applications. I'm not opposed to using Raspberry Pis or maybe even some Odroids if it's more practical or building a small server. As always, I enjoy the show and I look forward to hearing your suggestions. Thanks, Glenn. So, Steve, if you were woke up in Glenn's shoes and you had a M93 kicking around, what would you do? Hmm. Well, honestly, if I was looking at, at doing this, so let's let's first tackle the should I do these on different machines question. Mm. Uh, they don't have to be different physical machines, but especially when you're talking about things that you might rely on, such as Home Assistant or NextCloud, you don't want the maintenance of one impacting the others. Modularity is king. Right? So... For example, Home Assistant needs to be rebooted from time to time as part of its process, right? And honestly, it wants to be the it, it has been my experience the best experience in Home Assistant, for example, is running their OS and letting them kind of control the stack. But aside from that, you might have a little bit of of hoops to jump through if you're running Plex and Nextcloud on the same um, host itself just because they're both web-based. I know they listen on different ports and et cetera, but I tend to like to keep things separated so that I can do maintenance on a specific host without impacting anything else. So that would be my my answer to that. And I wanted to tackle that before the Lenovo Tiny PC because mm-hmm. while the Tiny PC has a decent amount of RAM for the stuff that it looks like you wanna do, as long as you're not hosting, you know, 700 people on Nextcloud and, <laughs> and Plex. Um, the the issue that I would have would be with storage. So it is my opinion, and I, I kind of mirror what Jim Salter has to say from 2.5 admins. Uh, USB enclosures are a pretty terrible, unreliable source for power. If you've got no other choice, fine. If you're using them for backup and you know you're you're not actively banging on them, again, fine. But I would want to have, if if I'm setting this up and I have a little bit of extra money, I would probably have mirrored drives. I would I would get two drives, even if they're small, and and mirror them with either BTFS or ZFS or or whatever you like, so that you are taking some care for your data, even if you don't have an, an extreme backup situation. So, in terms of what I would do if I woke up in your shoes, I would look at the Intel, Intel Xeon D processors, specifically the ones that are rated for uh, low TDP. So there's the 1539, as an example, has eight cores at 2.2 gigahertz, and it it's a 35 watt processor. Um, that would be more than sufficient for the type of load that you're trying to do. Um, maybe depending on Plex, you might you might look at some other processor that might have QuickSync or something, but. I think that's that would be what I would do. It would have, it's it's a little bit older at this point, so it should be a little bit cheaper. But it has some of the enterprisey type features like 10 gig Ethernet. Should you need that in the future, and um, IPMI, so the ability to turn on the computer remotely or or administer it remotely, things like that is what I would be looking at if I was setting it up again. So I'll start, you know, when I, when I was in college, I had like no money at all. And of course, I still wanted to be able to host, uh, self-host all of my things. That drive was still there. And, but what I had available to me was some USB drives and an old IBM server that my employer at the time was getting rid of. Um, and so did I plug those USB drives into the back of that IBM uh, server and run it for five years? I absolutely did. Did I have any problems with it? No, I didn't. Worked just fine. Was it the smartest thing in the world? Maybe not, you know, especially if you've got 3.5 inch drives and they have external power supplies. You, I think you can sidestep the the power requirements over the USB bus. Um, and again, the, you know, there's it, it's all what your budget is and what, how much work you want to go through. So if you're looking for an all in one like 
one machine that can do it all. You might look at something like a PowerEdge T710 or R710. And so what that's going to get you is a real server platform. So you have the ability to do like what Steve was talking about, the ability to it's not IPMI, they use IDRAC for, for Dell, but same kind of idea, you can do remote console administration. You also have the ability to swap those storage controllers out with something, you can either use the onboard RAID controller or you can flash those cards into something called IT mode, which will give you direct access to the disks. The advantage of doing that you're able to install something like TrueNAS and run ZFS on the on 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 the drives. I would not, I repeat, I would not use ZFS on the drives if you're using a RAID controller because ZFS really expects to be able to talk directly straight to the storage. So you don't want you don't want the RAID card to obfuscate um, those storage things. As far as what you're running, you absolutely could get away with running this on an M93, or you could buy a little Dell Optiplex. Um, and if you wanted to split the difference between what Steve is saying and what I'm saying, you could buy like a little Dell Optiplex or a Dell Precision. You could put the storage drives actually in there, then they're connected over SATA and they're on the PCI bus and all the good things. Um, but you're still kind of, you're not breaking the bank. You're only spending 100 or $200. So that's maybe the, the, the quote unquote best way to go. Um, I agree with Steve implicitly. I wouldn't in a million years put more than one thing on the same box and not just for maintenance purposes, impacting one thing or the other. But if one thing crashes, you don't want everything to go down all at one time. If you can separate that up and get some modularity, A, when your Plex server out, outpaces the rest of your stuff, like let's just say, for example, you get all this set up and the file server's working great and the and the um, Nextcloud server's working great and everything's working great except for Plex. Plex is going nuts because first your, your relative wanted and then your best friend from high school and then the cousin that you never even knew you had that has 19 kids, they all wanted access to your Plex server and pretty soon, you know, Plex has grown out of control. And so now you want to split Plex off as a much more, you know, approachable thing to do if you can either A, hey, I'm just going to go buy a more powerful virtual host and I'll just slide the VM over or B, I'm going to rebuild just this part of the box over here. So all of those things are going to, to lead to a better experience. So I, I think you could go the route of doing Odroids or Raspberry Pis, but frankly, that does not seem to be how do I say this efficient and, or, um, I, 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 I guess it's, it's just, a, it's a very expensive, complicated way to do it because in, in some ways it's less complex because you have a separate box for every device. The, the problem is the whole advantage of virtualization is for every computer that you buy, you have redundancy for all of the machines that are running on top of it. So if you have one V host and you have, let's say five VMs, fine. If you buy just one other computer or you use your M93 as a backup, now you have your primary virtual host and your backup virtual host, and you can slide VMs back and forth between them. So for all of those reasons, I would encourage you in the strongest possible terms to, to split them out into individual boxes. Um, if you have feedback, if you have thoughts, if you have questions, we invite you to write in at live at .com. I'm particularly interested if you can help answer other questions, like I believe it was Adrian that asked a question about printing web pages to PDFs. If that's you, and, or I'm sorry, it was Zane. If that's you and you have an answer, then write in at live at asknoahshow.com. Let us know how you would handle that. Imagine you have a kid that plays two to two and a half hours of video games every day. Now imagine that those same kids have difficulty completing online assignments. And then finally imagine that after they graduate, they go into the world and they're facing the 2.4 million jobs in the STEM field that are unfilled right now. They could apply for those, those jobs if only they had the experience and knowledge of STEM. So our question to you is, what tools and resources would you use to enable kids and non-tech friends and family to explore technology? The answer Steve and I have been looking at is Endless OS. You can learn more at EndlessOS.com. The Endless operating system is a simple and easy to use for any, anyone. It is fully equipped, fully equipped with essential apps to learn, play, and work, and connect in 2023. Once installed, 
No internet is required. Provided by the Endless OS Foundation, the OS is free for individuals and non-commercial use. We've made Endless OS available to everyone, easy to download and install for personal use, as well as non-commercial deployments at small scale. And we'd love your help in bringing more people around the world into the Endless OS. Endless OS's foundation goal is to deliver an access to education to everyone, regardless of means, opportunity, and one powerful way of doing this is to make sure that software is available for anyone that wants or needs it. So again, what tools and resources are you using that would enable kids or non-tech friends or family to explore technology? So I dug a little bit into the organization behind Endless OS, and they really are a couple of entities that work collectively together. So the first is Endless Network. You can learn more at EndlessNetwork.com. They work to transform the lives of kids and young adults by expanding access to technology, information, and teaching them 21st century skills. And so the idea is that we're a global network of companies and foundations and nonprofits and technologies and advocates, and they all want to unlock the human potential through technology. But to do that, there are three things that they have to do. A, they have to get access to devices. If you don't have access to a techno technological device like a computer, a tablet, a smartphone, you can't learn these skills. You have to be able to have hands-on. The second thing is it can't require internet in the same way that we advocate over and over and over again that people have the ability to do these things offline and so that they are in charge of their own future. Endless understands that this is particularly true of people that live in third world countries, Africa, other places, or maybe just in the United States, but don't have access to constant internet. And so the content has to be available offline. They call it offline internet. I'm going to call it offline content. And the third thing is kids engage better when things are entertaining. And I watch this with my own children. I watch them come home from school and they get addicted to a particular website that does math problems, but it does it in a fun game-like way. And so in the same way that they come home and they play all sorts of other games, they start playing their games from school because it's fun for them and they don't realize, they don't make the connection between work and learning. Learning becomes fun. And changing that paradigm about the way that we explore things and the way that we learn things can be an incredibly powerful way to make technology approachable to people that otherwise it wouldn't be. And so the reasons for Endless and for what they're calling Hack, which is their, uh, I guess, educational part of it that creates the the, the applications. Um, again, 2.4 million STEM jobs in the U.S. are going unfulfilled. 66% of teens between the ages of 8 and 12 play video games on an average of two hours a day. 56% of teens 13 to 17 play 2.5 hours a day. And 9 million school children are having difficulty completing assignments online. And so with Hack, they're committed to cultivating digital literacy and empowering the next generation with creative problem-solving skills that can be applied universally. And the success includes more than just equipping kids with the same key skills, but rather they aim for a dynamic foundation with the next generation of thinkers. And as kids progress through Hack, they cultivate their curiosity and learn how the world works. And so they start with this idea that when you hear the word Hack, what comes to mind? Do things like rigged elections and cybersecurity breaches, is that often what we associate with the term hack? Because the concept of hack, really, and a hacker is somebody who is a technology enthusiast, somebody who wants to dig in, understand, and learn. And so they've embraced this powerful and controversial term because of the genesis of creative problem solving and empowerment over technology, precisely what they're aiming to achieve. And so, again, what tools or resources are you using that enable kids, non-tech friends or family to explore technology? I'd love to hear from you at either 855-450-NOAA or live at asknoahshow.com. So that brings us to Endless OS. Endless OS is available in two flavors. The first is what you're familiar with, a three gigabyte basic ISO installer, works like every other operating system you've ever used. The second is very interesting. It's a 16 gigabyte ISO that has everything. It's like the full kahuna. And... You can take the 16 gigabyte image and load it onto the machine and it comes with all of the applications, all of the data. It includes a full encyclopedia. It includes all of these learning games and the entire OS is so polished that both Steve and I almost fell off our chairs. We're looking at it. And we're like, how can it be this good? And it turns out they've been around for like 10 years. I've heard of Endless OS, but I've just in the last week really started to dig into it. So it's based on GNOME and I would describe the interface really more like a tablet or a phone insofar as all of the applications show up as a little tile, you click on it, and then it opens up that application. So Steve, when you first uh, played around with Endless OS, really you were looking to replace, I think, an operating system for your children. What were your initial thoughts? 
So this, the idea for this was we wanted to be able to give our kids kind of like a safe way to do research, right? I wanted to, primarily my wife, I don't want to take credit for this. I just, I happened to dig around. She gave me the requirements and I went and dug around until I found something. Um, but she wanted that to give them an on-ramp into becoming proficient at researching things, um, partly because that's a large part of what, what my job is and probably a lot of people's jobs. And so I knew, I knew about endless OS and I'd been, I'd been following it for a few years now. And I knew that they had like this offline thing. And I, I had, I suppose incorrectly thought that it was really mostly geared at the third world initiatives that they, that they had touted previously. But I was like, well, you know, I know that it has a bunch of stuff. I'm just going to fire it up. I didn't even go to the website and look around. I knew, I knew about it. I, downloaded it, installed it, and I went, holy crap, this, this is amazing. And I was telling Noah, I went around trying to figure out how do I give these people money? Because <laughs> I, I was so impressed with this, with this offering that I was like, how do I do this? Like I was able to find, they have a, a thing where you can basically pay monthly to get a laptop from them and it's pretty cheap. But aside from that, I couldn't find any way to actually give them money for this because we have a, we have a homeschooling community here and it was my wife's idea that, you know, I could, I could buy a bunch of Odroids and just give them out to the people in the homeschooling community and stealing a page out of Noah's book, you know, and when I'm recouping the cost, I put 20 bucks onto it and just shovel that to endless because ultimately I don't really like the labor for doing something like this is super low and I, mm-hmm. I'm not looking to make money the, and I wanted to be able to funnel money into the, into the organization. I haven't been able to figure that out, but <laughs> uh, so that if, if the endless guys are listening, I did send you an email. I haven't heard back from you guys. Uh, it would be really nice to know how, well, how we can directly we, contribute. There's uh this is, this is a bit on the, on the DL until maybe a few weeks from now, but they might be coming on the show. We'll just leave oh, it at that. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. So the the apps that are installed, I, I, the the best thing I can do and is is encourage you to go download Endless OS and check it out. But the 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 way I'm going to try to describe it is when you open, like let's say you open up the social services or social sciences, which is essentially their learning modules, and it's an incredibly well done UI. And there's a large splash screen that that represents the particular topic. So whether you're opening the social serv- or social uh, sciences app or the biology app or the anatomy app or the encyclopedia app or the history app or the health app, all of them have kind of the same general layout. And so it comes up with huge topics, right? So like applied social science, humanities, law and politics, psychology. And then once you click on one of those topics, it'll take you in and drill down and you can get very specific. And so like Steve was saying, if you're looking to do research, um, it's a phenomenal tool to do that. Now, I want you to imagine that you live in a society or you live in a world where you don't have access to a reputable information. And now you have this app where you open up the health app, you click on ailments and you start looking through and you have an anxiety, for example, and you say, I don't, I don't know what anxiety is. When you click on anxiety and it tells you anxiety is the emotion characterized by unpleasant state of inner turmoil. And then it goes on to explain what anxiety is and, and how to deal with it. And, and all of these things that ordinarily those of us that have access to the internet and WebMD and those sorts of things, we take this for granted. We don't really care, but to have it all packaged into an operating system designed to be used offline, designed to be inviting and encouraging to people that don't have technical nature is fantastic. And then you start to get into the technical side. So like Steve, I'd heard of Endless OS. I'd seen some review videos on it. I think I'd maybe even poked around on their site a a little bit. But at the end of the day, I've been using Linux long enough that I don't need a curated thing with apps and, and a special flat pack store and all that stuff. I'll just I'll put the software I want on there. Uh, and I'm and I'm not a big fan of GNOME. So I never really paid a whole lot of attention to it. But after playing with it a little bit, I got into the hack program. And the hack program, the best way I can describe it is it's a collection of little friends. And they provide guided tours through the basic components of your computer. And so you open the hack thing up and it says, I want to explore the system. And so you click on terminal and it, and the little guy will pop up and he'll say something like, the terminal is often emulated in movies. And so when you hear people talking about hacking into stuff, you might see them emulating the terminal. The terminal, that's because it's a very powerful tool and can do something 
some really powerful, cool things. But let's look at how to use it for real, and I'll show you some real things you can do. Here's the terminal. I've opened it for you, and then terminal pops up. If you need to get to it, you can go up to the search bar and type in terminal, and you can get back to here. Now try some of these commands, and then it gives you a command and shows you what the expected output is and walks you through it. Now again, you might be listening to that and go, yes, Noah. I'm a Linux professional. I don't need to be walked through how to use the terminal. I'm well aware how to launch a terminal. Fine. Right, do you know how to use Blender? Because I didn't know how to create animations in Blender, but three hours later, after playing with FSOS, I know how to create animations in Blender now. And it walks you through. And so all of these things, from creativity, from Audacity, to Inkscape, to photo editing, all of these things are built and baked right into the operating system. And oh, by the way, I've been running it all week, and I have to tell you, it's a fantastic daily driver. There's a, there's a couple little paper cuts insofar as it's designed to do what it's designed to do, and so when you want to step out of the box and do some other things on it, you have to put on your problem-solving cap, and you have to remember that it's Debian underneath. But then past that, they don't stop you from doing anything. It's a full-functioning Linux computer. I love it. I, I can't say enough about it. I was the, the thing that really drew me in is actually they have a little section called Play, but yeah. all of the video games that they make are all educational. And uh, I launched this game called Dragon's Apprentice. And okay, it's not like AAA quality um, graphics, but it is really good. It is a like it's an RPG style thing. But in order to progress past certain uh, obstacles, you actually enter hacking mode where <laughs> you, you have to do something like in some cases, it's figure out how to... In one case, there's a you have to get the golem. So there's a golem on the other side of the lava, and he can traverse the lava, but you can't, and you need something there. So you actually have to figure out how to get into the terminal to tell the golem to go get the thing that you want and bring it back to you. And it's 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 really good. I was really surprised. Like you can run around. It's got all the traditional RPG stuff, like potions, and like you can just run around and break random stuff in the in the game. And there's characters to talk to, and there's quests, but I looked at this, I was like, where are, th I, I've been looking into like kids in open source for hmm, somewhere around six years. And I had never come across any of these, these, well, not any of them, but most of the games that are inside Endless OS by default, mm -hmm. I'd not come across. Like, where are these games hiding? Well, and so I, I guess in, in, in the interest of full disclosure, right? I th when you start looking at some of the licensing for things like the the encyclopedia and stuff like that, the, all, the license is all proprietary. So I'm not sure how all of this is packaged insofar as where are the sources available. Like you're saying, that might be why we're not seeing them on other distros. But as far as a as a feature complete operating system, this kicks the bejeebers out of a Chromebook all day long, every day. If I had my choice, I see what my kids come home from school and the kind of educational tools that they're using on Chromebooks, which really amounts to some half-okay website that they bookmark in Chrome. And then I look at what this thing is capable of, and it's like night and day. I mean, it isn't even close. <clears throat> yeah, I, I can't say good enough good things about it. Like, I, I put... <laughs> I put a VM on my computer. I put one on my wife's computer. Like they, I put this on. I'm not kidding. Like like Noah, I've been using Linux a very long time, right? And so it's not like I need something like this, but it sure is nice. Like in, click install and I'm done. And then I just have whatever I want right there. And it's like Noah, the, the information here is really good. Like mm. I, I know we're running low-ish on time, but I was looking in, so in the hack program, um, on the desktop, they have like different areas in the clubhouse. And so I went to the operating system and there's actually a section on learning the GNOME shell extension, CSS and emojis. And so I was like yeah. actually starting to pick through that. I was like, I actually don't, I've installed the thing, but I don't know much about how it actually works. And yeah. so it's been kind of interesting. Yeah, it, they've they've done an absolutely outstanding job. So you can learn uh, you can learn more again, uh, either hack-computer.com, endlessnetwork.com, or endlessos.com. They're all serving those three goals of getting people uh, access for. Games for learning, device access, and offline internet. I'm calling it content. Um, and so absolutely check it out. Whether you are absolutely new 
to technology and, and you're just getting started, whether you have a relative or a friend that lives in a place that maybe doesn't have access to some of this stuff and would greatly benefit from a used computer reloaded with endless OS, I think that's fantastic. Or if you have kids and you're looking for a way to, it includes things like parental controls. And so you can lock down the system and choose what they can get access to, what they can't get access to, as well as a really spectacular interface. I mean, the way that they've gone about designing all of these, the the launcher so that everything shows up right in the middle, exactly how you would expect in a tablet or something like that. Highly, highly, highly recommended. Both Steve and I don't have enough good things to say about it. So invite you to check all of those things out. You can find links and resources to all of the things we've talked about podcast.asknoahshow.com. Raspberry Pis will soon have more camera-based options available to them uh, in the newest camera module from a single-board computer maker that allows autofocus and high dynamic range for lower-light photos and more. So the camera module 3, it starts at $25 and lets you take crisp images of objects from around 7 centimeters out to infinity. The Raspberry Pi CEO Eben Upton wrote in a blog post announcement that the standard field of view camera costs $25, well, the wider field of view is available for $35. Now, the sensor is a Sony sensor, backed illumination with the IMX708. It provides a 12-megapixel image. And frankly, up until they released this, there was a camera module available for the Pi, but you were oftentimes better off just using like a, a Logitech C920, C930, something like that. This thing is fantastic. It opens the Raspberry Pi up to for so many more uses. Now, with autofocus, and I, the HDR thing is cool too, but autofocus, in my humble opinion, was the thing that was holding this the, the camera module back. Now you have the opportunity to put the camera module on the Raspberry Pi, and boom, you have an IP camera. You could send it over NDI, pull that source in over NDI into OBS, and boom, now you have an IP camera that has a remote network feed and feeding back into OBS. And again, you're doing this for, you know, a hundred and some dollars for the Raspberry Pi and then $25 for the camera. So this is actually a really, really, really good deal uh, for what you're getting. The autofocus is uh, truly a big improvement in the, in, the, in the camera module three. The lens assembly has been mounted on a voice coil actuator and the autofocus relies on either the sensor's uh, detection of the Pi's algorithm. Steve, have you played with the camera Pi or the, the camera module for Raspberry Pis, or does the camera three offer you any incentive to do so? You know, I did play around with it uh, way back on. I want to say the Pi two when I made uh, when I was first learning about the Pi. I went to a conference. I can't remember which one. Probably a Python conference, and they did. They taught you how to make a Pi doorbell. And that was the first time, the first and only time that I really played with the camera because outside of that, as you kind of alluded to, the camera was not so great. And so I just kind of abandoned that afterwards. I was like, yeah, that's kind of okay if I want to have a blurry photo when somebody walks to the door. Um, <laughs> um, I could see this being kind of interesting. I'd be interested to see what the maker community can do with something like this. If you can attach it to something smaller, like an 82, uh, like an ESP device of mm -hmm. some sort, that becomes a little more interesting to me. Um, I know that they've got the Raspberry Pi Zero um, and the Raspberry Pi W, which are uh, smaller. That that could be something that might be of interest. They'd have to. They have to get the stock back. That's been the big problem with Raspberry Pi. Yes. Pi's. Oh my gosh. Yes. So this came up at AltaSpeed earlier when we were when they this came out. We were talking about it in the shop, and the the answer came out. It was like, hey, this is really cool, but it kind of loses its appeal when the baseboard is. Because I mean, I say it's a hundred bucks for the Raspberry Pi four, but realistically, because they're out of stock anywhere, if you're actually to buy one, it's going to cost you one hundred sixty to one hundred seventy dollars. Then you got to buy a case, and so if you're going with the Argon one, add another twenty five thirty bucks, and then you need a power supply, so there's another ten fifteen bucks, and then an SD card. There's another 20 bucks so all in you're probably over 200 dollars. well now what camp i mean you can go buy an ip camera for 250 you can buy access ip camera for 200 250 bucks on ebay so i don't know it's frustrating because you're right with the lack of stock it's not quite there today but because the technology exists i think it's a really cool thing the case involves live journals. So this is a social media platform that allows users to create communities based on a common theme or subject. And the communities are managed by moderators who review posts, including photos that users submit to make sure they follow the rules for posting and commenting created in the community. 
So there was a community that was focused on celebrity news, and it was called Oh No They Didn't, or ONTD. And it became particularly popular, and it had millions of members and millions of views. When Mavericks Photography, a photo agency that specialized in celebrities, discovered that some of their celebrity photos had been posted on uh, on LiveJournal, they didn't send a, a, a DMCA takedown notice. Instead, they just went straight to the court to sue them for copyright infringement. So LiveJournal finds out about this, and of course, they immediately take the posts down, and they invoke the DMCA safe harbor law, saying that, hey, it, we were simply hosting content at the direction of a user. We weren't the ones that published that content. We didn't ask for those photos. They just submitted them, and we had no idea that they were copywritten, so we put them up on our site. And so the court agreed and said, yep, that's fine, safe harbor, you're fine. Well, then it appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court, and they took a different view. They took the view that LiveJournal's reliance on moderators and reviews to delete content meant that the moderators were the ones that played an active role in shaping what the content went online. So put simply, on Twitter, you post content, it's live. It's immediately live because you put it up on the Internet. And if a moderator comes and looks and says, mm, that doesn't really fall under our guidelines, I'm going to take it down. That is content moderation. That is safe harbor because you could have potentially missed something. In this case, what the court has Ninth Circuit Court decided is if you're deciding what goes live, you are the gatekeeper for that site. You will become the publisher of that site. And so it doesn't matter that the content was created by a third party. That party submitted it to you. You made the choice to make it public. And so you approve of it being public on your site because you pushed it out to the Internet. They couldn't do that. You were the gatekeeper. And so because they didn't ask for the content, that isn't a defense for Safe Harbor. And I... Man, do I struggle with this, Steve, because they removed the post as soon as it became clear it was copyright infringement. Are we now to say that DMCA means that you can't have moderators and that if you do have moderators, they better be only reactionary and never proactive? Because five minutes ago, there was a push to get moderators so that content could be policed and that there was a frustration that if they sent DMCA takedown notices, who is going to respond to them? Who's going to receive them? Who's going to enact on them? And so my question to you would be, do you think that sites should be held accountable for material that they didn't moderate? And does it matter to you that this company first had the user submit the content to them and then made the choice to publish it. Is that an important distinguishing line for you? I'd love to hear from you. Again, 855 noah or live at com. Steve, your thoughts. Hmm. It's, it's a tough call because on some level, even if you're submitting it, the content to a place, do they actually go through it? Them, like, is there actually a human behind it? Like I think about, for example, the Amazon comments that, that, are always going into review and then they get published. Do they actually have somebody reading through that? Like, what is, what is the, uh, what is the intent there? If you have someone going through it and they make that decision, then maybe you are a little bit on the liable side. Whereas mm -hmm. if you're having an automated system, it just needs to be having having some refinement. So I think that that the method by which you are playing the gatekeeper, I think, has an impact as to whether or not I feel you're responsible or not. Yeah, uh, it'll it'll be interesting to see how this works out. I continue to be a little I decided got the impression that it was humans that was that were going through and moderating the content, that it was not an automated system, but rather a human that was choosing to publish or not. And it does seem like the court decided to make that the line in the sand in which they made their decision. But time will tell. I think the idea of third-party doctrine law, I think the idea of Section 230 protections is going to be in the news a lot, is going to be in our purview a lot. Music in our ears means we're out of time. We record the show every Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. Join us live at AskNoahShow.com. Have a good week.